Hi listeners, it's Lucy. Please don't scroll ahead. This is a very quick message, I promise, to ask a very easy favour. At the end of each episode, as the credits roll, you'll hear a request from us to rate and review the show. Now, for those of you that are awesome podcast listeners rather than podcast makers, you might actually have no idea what a huge difference those things make. A significant factor in the visibility of a podcast on almost all listening platforms is down to the number and quality of ratings and subscriptions. So, if you are one of our dedicated listeners, hi, I know some of you as far away as Australia, so thanks. If you're currently not driving your car or changing a baby's nappy, can you please just look down at your phone right now as I'm talking and hit subscribe and five-star rating? Both of them are on the homepage of the show and they are both only a one-click job. But oh my God, what a lot of joy and gratitude I would feel at those one clicks. It makes such a difference to the show's potential to keep going. Now, enjoy the episode and thanks for listening. Hi, Lucy Eaton here, host of Hear Me Out. We've had lots of requests from our amazing listeners asking how they can support the show. So before we invite today's special guest on, I wanted to let you know that we are officially now on Patreon. This means that you can invest in the channel monthly, and in return you get all kinds of perks from bonus footage to having your own questions put to our starry guests. Just head to our page on patreon.com slash podhearmeout. We've popped the link in the show notes below, and we would love to have you join the family. You're about to hear a brief conversation with an incredible artist. Part autobiographical journey, part literary analysis, and part late-night chat in the theatre bar. This is Hear Me Out. And I'm your host, Lucy Eaton. Please welcome to the stage, Richard Eyre. (laughs) We will get going then, Richard, and see what little nuggets of fun information we can find out. Mm. Do you want to start by telling us what the speech is that you want to chat about today? The speech is from... Shakespeare's King Lear and it's towards the end of the play when uh, Lear's youngest daughter and King Lear himself have been captured by forces controlled by uh, his estranged two other daughters. Mm. Now it's a speech that has always moved me profoundly because there's something about King Lear that is in every father. There's, there's that ability of all fathers to be able to talk to their children or think they can talk to their children in a commanding way because they feel in some way that their children are their possessions and they have a right to command their children and are astonished when their children turn round and say, <laughs> no, I have my own life, I have my own identity, I will not be pushed around by this. Yeah. And it's a play about a family as much as about a state. Oh, yeah. And the speech that I love so much is a speech where Cordelia and her father are being dragged off to prison. Mm. And Cordelia, as any young person would, is protesting wildly (laughs) uh, against her captors and against her vicious elder sisters. Yeah. And this is King Lear's advice to her. And it contains what, for me, are some of the most beautiful thoughts in the whole of Shakespeare and the most beautiful language in the whole of Shakespeare. Wonderful. And for me, it's, it's a sort of guide to 
reconciliation, redemption, lack of self-pity, putting yourself at a distance from the world and say, look, these things don't matter as much as love. Mm. The comings and goings, the ambitious, crawling courtiers doesn't matter. What matters is that we love each other. And it's sort of like that Auden poem which ends, we shall love each other or die. Am I right in thinking everything you're describing there, this is one of the first moments of almost resignation or or gentleness? It's the second moment of gentleness. The first is when he comes round from a state of madness, like being in a a coma. He comes round and recognises or thinks he recognises his youngest daughter. And that is an entirely compelling scene uh, where it says that he thinks that it is Cordelia, and she says, it is, it is. And it's intensely moving. I've directed the play twice, and the last time was I made a film of it with Anthony Hopkins. Yes. And he, I never expect to see a better performance in that part. Oh, really? I mean, that was, I was going to come to that later. I was going to say, who is your, uh, I was actually going to say, effectively, present company excluded, your own Lear's excluded, who would you say does it wonderfully? But you think Anthony Hopkins absolutely nailed it. I think he did nail it. Yeah. Something to do with him being a great actor anyway. Yeah. But also a lot to do with the fact he is just about the age of Lear, he's 80, he's had in some ways a tempestuous life Mm. and he can look back now and say, what's important to me are these things. Mm. Or in in the speech that I've chosen, the mystery of things, i.e. what actually goes on in everything, things. I mean, not just object, but things, things that happen. Yeah. Things that are born, things things of the natural world. Everything is, there's a mystery about everything. There's, there's a, a wonder about everything. Yeah. And that's what he now is at a state where he can appreciate. Yeah, I saw a brilliant interview with him following the two popes mm. in which I think the interviewer was really looking for Anthony Hopkins to give a, a specific answer to something that he was mm. just not willing to give a specific answer to. And it was so magical. He sort of said everything you're saying there. I remember him making points where he was like, I don't know. I don't know anything. <laughs> you know, like I've been around long enough to know. I don't know anything. <laughs> and it was really, mm. um, it was really refreshing to watch actually. But to what extent is, because I think you touched on something that interests me a lot there, where you said that he's at a point where he can sort of understand these things himself, you know, he is of the right age. Do you think an actor needs to have experienced things to act them? Or is this just a particular example where it definitely helped bring out a wonderful performance that he he could be in the mindset? Well, of course, you've touched on one of the great conundrums of acting mm. because the job of an actor isn't to be the person. Yeah. It's to imagine what the person is like and put yourself in the position of the person, the character you're playing, and then simulate 
that person. You're not yeah. being that person. You're pretending to be that person. And if you're really good, then the audience will think they'll suspend their disbelief. They, yes. You become yeah. that person. There's a lot of talk about method acting. Mm. And there is no method except the method of every actor, which is singular and distinct. And some people need a lot of aids to to reach their performance. And immersion. Immersion and some things which I find quite alienating. And I think, please, why are you making it so difficult for yourself? Mm. And there are other actors. I mean, I've just been working on a film with Judy Dench, oh, for instance. I was about to say, I mean, she's the queen of the other way round, isn't she? <laughs> she is. And effortlessly, you yeah. talk about a scene and then you're about to go and you see her becoming the character yeah and in front of your eyes and you can say when you're filming turn over so the camera starts mm. and then you see her in a few seconds and I see her becoming the person I say action and then she's the person so I don't know how she does it any more <laughs> than I know how you know great musicians achieve their effects yeah. It's something unaccountable. There was a big profile about Jeremy Strong in the New York Times last year. I don't know if you saw it. And it picked up on the fact that he is obviously very method, in inverted commas. Mm. Um, and I mean, his performances are incredible. So whatever gets him there, I'm I'm a huge fan. But Brian Cox actually said a similar thing to what you were just saying there in an interview. He said that he sometimes worries about Jeremy Strong yes, and he sort of yes. wishes that he could just pretend, just switch it on. And he pulls out an anecdote that I hadn't heard before that was apparently Laurence Olivier yes. and... Um, oh, Dustin Hoffman. Yes, that's it. Yeah. yeah. Dustin Hoffman was stay, staying up all night and <laughs> running in the morning and yeah. torturing himself. And Olivier said, my dear, why don't you just try acting? <laughs> yes. And I, I sort that. of half admire that. Brian Cox, incidentally, was a very good King Lear. Mm. And I can imagine that. Wonderful actor. But I don't judge. It can be irritating if you, you know, every, if you have a group of 10 actors, you have 10 different methods of acting. Yeah. And some people will need to erect complicated scaffolding around their performances and mm. climb up step by step mm. and painfully slowly often to the point that you despair that they'll ever get to the top of the scaffolding. Others just instinctively sense it and are able to start from the first moment. Yeah. They're within the character. Well... You can't you can't make judgments about that. The d job of the director is to bring together the two ends of the spectrum, so that they merge. So that mm. if it's a, a theatre play, the audience aren't thinking, "Ooh, that actor's in a different context than the other actor." And we do see that and sometimes. It, you do see that sometimes. Yeah. So it's the job of the director to merge it to, mm. to not let the audience know how the performances have been arrived at. The fact is, you are in the position as a spectator of believing that that person, that individual, that singular character yeah. actually exists. Yeah. However it's been achieved. 
yeah, the audience don't need to know how the sausage is made. They absolutely don't. And I suppose the key difference is all actors should be aspiring to spontaneity. And that's what you're trying to capture, particularly on film, mm. the spontaneous moment. But that spontaneity is 99.9% planned for. You plan for spontaneity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, I suppose there are directors who resort to, as it were, punch in the face uh, so that an actor will respond in a furious fashion. I think that's a form of tyranny. I think that's so interesting what you were saying about you have whatever 10 actors and that you've got 10 methods. And I do think I, for a very, very brief amount of time when I was at university, attempted direction and Richard... You're not going to have any competition from me. Oh, I Lucy. was awful at it. Well, I remember my my daughter, also called Lucy, oh. coming to a rehearsal. She was quite young and she got very bored. At the end of the rehearsal, she said to me, Dad, I cannot understand how you can bear to put up with all those questions. <laughs> Why can't they sort it out for themselves? You're like, well, I wouldn't have a job. <laughs> yes, exactly. I want the questions. Um, so back to King Lear. So you said um, that you've just done it with Anthony Hopkins and he was particularly remarkable. I read somewhere that you obviously had quite a challenge in doing the TV version because you had to cut it immensely. Yeah. I'm guessing this speech remained in. It did. In the first series of Hear Me Out, I spoke to Maddie Hill and Maddie did a production of Cymbeline at the Globe. And mm. the speech that she spoke about was her favourite speech from that. And she said that she wished she could have her time again to do it because at the time she was so emotionally invested in the speech. She loved it so much that she thinks she didn't really do it justice. Right. She was sort of too enamoured with it. Did you feel any nervousness approaching the day of shooting this? Or was it harder to do than any of the rest? No, it wasn't. We were filming... This scene is filmed... Uh as was much of the last fifth of the film at Dover Castle. It was intensely cold the day, and there was a, a wind, a bitter wind, the day that we filmed this scene where Lear and Cordelia are being dragged off to prison. Mm. I never said to Tony, you know, Tony, this is my favourite speech, and... I really want you to... You better do it justice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, look after the speech. Actually, I wanted to make the marching off to prison quite brutal. Mm. I think the reason Tony did it so brilliantly is that it came out of the, the circumstances of being marched off to prison. Mm. And neither he nor I sort of protected the speech by saying, all right, take your time, because... You know, these soldiers will respect the fact that... <laughs> that you've you know, got nice words to say. <laughs> you've got nice words. I said, you know, you're at the limit. You're, you're pushing it to the limit of their patience, mm. the patience of your captors. And so there's, there's a sort of sense of urgency behind it that he had that somehow gave this exquisite reflective speech a sense of, of, of momentum. It got the spontaneity that you were talking about earlier. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. When you did, so I know you said you directed it twice and the first time was, of course, with Ian Holm at the National. It was, yeah. How, what was the difference? How was this speech done in that production? I suppose the circumstances, the way I staged it, was very similar. 
And Ian Holm was consummately brilliant actor. And you're pushing me into a corner by forcing me to choose between <laughs> the performances of two great actors. Yeah. All I can say is that I'm now of an age where I'm practically 80. Well, I'm 78. So you get to a point where you do start to look at things just differently. There's a different distance mm. on events. When I directed Ian... This was in the 97, so that's nearly 25 years ago. Yeah, yeah. And I'd like to think I've changed in 25 <laughs> years and acquired some sort of wisdom, some sort of detachment. Mm. 25 years ago, I was part of the whole world of thrusting ambition and, you know, still... I, I was running the National Theatre, but about to leave, and I was yeah. very much in the in the, the sort of maelstrom of what people call a career. I call just going from one job to another. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. You know, looking for work, being driven by a sort of compulsion to work and a dissatisfaction occasionally, and feeling I hadn't achieved that, so I must do that, and then. Now I feel I don't regret that sort of wildness and, and turmoil and ambitiousness, but I just, I, I feel, oh, God, I'm glad I don't have to do it again. So do you feel like you can sort of settle in jobs a bit more now, just enjoy them for what they are? Do you worry less about, you know, the age-old thing, everyone in this industry is always worrying about the next thing? I, I do, and, and funny th I've just finished directing a film of an Alan Bennett script adapted very well by Heidi Thomas. Yeah. And I found, sort of for the first time making a film, I thought I, I don't have to be so anxious about everything. Mm. I, I felt oddly calm day after day. I thought, OK, I know what I'm doing now. I don't have anything to... Prove. I'm working with these wonderful actors. I'm working with a great crew. Yeah. All I have to do is just say, well, this is what we're going to do and discuss it and we do it without being in a, a, a state of perpetual agony. So 78 is the dream age, Richard. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's when it's all going to feel easy. <laughs> in some ways it gets easier. Yeah. It really does. And obviously the price you pay is that physically <laughs> you decay. Uh but I I do feel there's there's a you acquire a sort of grace. Back on your beautiful speech, Richard, you said earlier on that you think it's some of the most beautiful language in all of Shakespeare. Can you pick out any particular bits? The line will Take upon us the mystery of things as if we were God's spies. And the idea of being God's spies, of looking at the world, and you have this play that is so ambitious that where you feel he's right, wanting to write about everything, about yes. politics, about the world of, of the spirit, and about all forms of love, of 
paternal love and fraternal love and yeah. sisterly love and spiritual love and sexual love. And that's the sort of symphonic form of the play. It's like he's saying, I'm going to do love. Which of you love me most? And yeah. he takes the theme of love in every direction, in symphonic fashion, mm. through the play. And finally it converges to the love of father and daughter. And it's a play that is so wildly and insanely ambitious. <laughs> and for me, achieves it. it it's all-encompassing. I think it's funny when you say about it being so wildly ambitious and so many bits in it. I saw the recent Ian McKellen, when I say recent, you know, three or four years ago, Ian McKellen won. And I remember it got to the interval. I mean, it's a long play. And it got to the interval... And the interval was after about an hour and 50 minutes. And in my mind, I was like, oh, is it the end if they abridged it? Because not knowing Lear as well as some other plays, in my mind, I was like, we've had the blinding. We've had yeah. the mad bit. <laughs> we've had the, you know, yes. in my mind, I was like, the play's over. And everyone went, no, no, it's the interval. And I was like, what else is going to happen? <laughs> and then there's this whole other play. So, yeah, it's, I mean, it is, it is amazing. You said this thing earlier about, you said your daughter made a comment about all the questions that get fired at you. And I know that I've read that what you want as a director, one of your jobs is to get the actors to ask, your job is to get them to ask you questions. Yeah. What are the kinds of questions you would expect or hope an actor would throw at you in regards to this speech? Well, I would hope that you've got to the stage... By the time you, you've reached this speech, which is near... You understand who he is. <laughs> you, un, you do understand who he is. So I would be shocked if I was working with an actor who said, tell me, what, what do you think is going on here in this What's speech? his motivation? And I would think, you haven't got it now, you're never going <laughs> to get it. Um, but going back to what I was saying earlier about the individual, the singularity of actors methods. Mm. I remember Ian Holm, when he was playing Leah on the opening, the first preview, saying to me, I went to see him in his dressing room and he said, I think I know how to do the Howell speech. I said, oh, great. He said, I'm not going to tell you, but I'll give it a go. And he played Howell, instead of being a sort of howl of despair, it was a command. So he was saying to all the people, who were surrounding, howl, you should be howling, howl, howl. This is so upsetting. This is the, the worst thing that has ever happened to me. You cry, you howl. Rather that, so there was no self-pity and there was no self-absorption about it. It yeah. was all explicit. It was a kind of divine anger. So where did that come from? I guess we'd talked often about that moment and mm. that was that had come out to Ian in the moment. And sometimes you can be halfway through a run and you get a new idea of how something ought to be done. Absolutely. Uh, and, and that's the thing that theatre, the audience, teaches you because, oh, yeah. you know, that's another thing about spontaneity that the actor has to be spontaneous or appear spontaneous. At the same time, they're actually listening, in some cases watching the audience and remembering everything. If you say to mm. an actor the next day, you say, you know that moment where you picked up the pen? Do you think 
maybe you should put the pen down later. And they say, yes, I, I thought that last night. But <laughs> then I saw this person in the second row who was just uh, looking at his phone. I thought, fuck it. <laughs> I, uh, and you think, but yeah. I had no idea because the actor appeared to be perfectly spontaneous. But of course, there's always one part of the brain that is monitoring what you're doing. Absolutely. Of course, when I was an actor, that part of the brain became overbearing and I couldn't continue to act because the third eye was so strong and I became paralysed by the critic in my brain saying, you didn't do that very well. So you don't miss the acting at all? No, I don't. I don't. (laughs) I think I was never... I think I was probably quite good at university because I was comparatively unselfconscious mm. and sort of full of a false... I didn't know it was false confidence, but full of confidence. I thought I could do it and people told me I could do it. And then the moment I started to examine myself and feel and doubt myself, then it was a, a, a rapid spiral of decline. Do you have a favourite space in England, or in Great Britain, not in England, in the UK as a whole? I love the Royal Court. I love putting on plays at the Royal Court. I love the auditorium of the Royal Court. Wyndham's Theatre is a wonderful theatre for plays. The Cottesloe Theatre, now called the Dorfman, is a wonderful space. I've had so many happy experiences putting on shows there. Pretty well any theatre that is designed by the Victorian architect Frank Matcham. Mm. Uh, Hackney Empire, for instance, is a wonderful theatre. Right. But the truth is that, like most directors, I'm quite vain about the spaces that I love. I love spaces where I've had a success. Yeah. (laughs) So I had a big success with the production of Guys and Dolls Mm. in the Olivier Theatre. So I have very, very fond memories of the Olivier Theatre. Although it can drive you absolutely insane because the acoustics are so difficult and the sight lines are so so difficult. I feel like that's why when something works at the Olivier, it sort of absolutely goes wild because I think it's sort of the perfect mix of things. Yeah. Have you found it, it sounds like from relatively early in your career then you were doing uh, screen stuff as well. Have you found it relatively easy to bounce between the two? Yes, except that I think that the habit of theatre is quite hard to unpick if you then start directing films. I mean, it's partly simply that theatre you're always watching front on. Mm. So you sort of think of the world as a sort of proscenium. You have to completely discard that. Mm. In film, you have the ability to change the audience's point of view from moment to moment. Every time you change a shot, the angle of a shot, the size of the shot, and the way you use sound and the way you edit a film, what lens you use, how you tell us a story, all of it is thoroughly different from what you do in the theatre. And it's... It's hard to unlearn. Mm. And I had a wonderful lesson from a very good cinematographer 
when I was doing a film early on. And we were looking at a scene and he suddenly walked off mm. behind the actors. And what, in fact, and I went and joined him, what he was doing was saying, the scene is much more interesting from this angle. And, I mean, that was quite a profound change of understanding for me that people reveal themselves in a lot of ways that in the theatre you're not able to, to reveal. Mm. But theatre is, you form a group, you start off on your journey, beginning of rehearsal, full of optimism, you have a group of people who... The idea is you unite, this group of people coheres, you perform, you, you produce a model society to yeah. do this piece of work, which you then offer up to an audience and it's either corroborated or, or not. <laughs> Whereas film isn't like that at all. It doesn't coalesce like that. It's a linear series of disparate moments. Mm. And it's possible to have, you know, a gloriously successful day when you're shooting with a, one lot of actors and, and the scene is going brilliant. And the next day you've got a different... And you can't make the scene live. Yeah. And then you put it together. Yeah. And I'm at this stage where I think I've had a really good... The last seven weeks have been great. I'm now waiting to see if what I've done, if the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. But my experience with the first time you see what's called an assembly, it's always disappointing because it's always somehow less than the sum of the parts until you start to uh, Do all mold the them together. And, yeah. and it becomes a sort of sculptural thing. You mm. take out a bit there, you add a bit there, and, and this sort of maquette grows and then there comes a stage editing a film that curiously it acquires its own life and it becomes this is one of the mystery of things yeah that it becomes something that is itself uh, it, there's no shortcut to that yeah it yeah. just emerges over weeks of editing yeah and it's 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 a marvelous process and one that is quite elusive Mm, whereas, yeah, theatre, I feel like you can see, you can see generally as you go along what you're making. You can, and you have run-throughs and you put it together and then, you know, things generally have a an ascent yeah. towards the... It, sometimes it stumbles when you take a play out of the rehearsal room and put it on stage. Yeah. And somehow that's, that is sometimes like you're carrying water in the palms of your hands. You arrive and say... Where's it gone? Yeah. <laughs> don't spill, don't spill. Yeah. <laughs> when you said about the family, you know, the community, mm. for want of a better word, the dreaded first day, I always think on a show, it's wonderful because, like you say, there's so much hope. Yeah. But the pressure I always find, you know, that first day when everyone meets, and it's also a pressure that you're putting on yourself, but I, I find, you know, you're looking at everyone going... Who are you going to be to me in eight weeks' time? It, Who here is going to have absolutely driven me up the wall? Who's going to be a new best yeah. friend? It's You're so aware that you're about to embark on this mission together. Yeah. And it is unlike any other job. I do think it's such an oddly personal and emotional thing. Yeah, I always find the pressure quite overwhelming on that first day, the pressure of opportunity. I wrote a poem about this. <gasps> Would you read it? Shall I read it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's called The Start. The start of all rehearsals is the same. Lines of curling, silvery, sticky tape frame the set and props and hats and skirts lie out, scattered, ready for our childlike game. In the gingangooly ring, I call out my name, then my roles to propagate the common aim. So hopping, heron-like, I talk about the play, the plan, the shared terrain. Virulent with nerves, I assert, indeed exclaim, that we're like pilgrims bonded by the claim to labour for the mutual good and be devout believers in self-exposure without shame. I'm faithless, but for the faith which I proclaim, that we depend on metaphor to sustain the alchemy of the ordinary without snubbing our need to entertain. I'm compelled to fan our fictive spark to flame and magnify our muted voice to shout, there will be no failure and no blame. The start of all rehearsals is the it's same. The same. <laughs> yes. That is absolutely bang on. I love that. I love the idea of being faithless, but for the faith that you're shouting. Yeah. I think we should end there, Richard. This has been so wonderful, except that we need to hear the speech. Okay. So would you just please read the speech out loud so that our listeners can hear it? Yeah. Come, let's away to prison. We two alone will sing like birds of the cage. When thou dost ask me blessing, I'll kneel down and ask of thee forgiveness. So we'll live and pray and sing and tell old tales and laugh at gilded butterflies and hear poor rogues talk of court news and we'll talk with them too who loses and who wins who's in who's out and take upon us the mystery of things as if we were god's spies and we'll wear out in a walled prison Pacts and sects of great ones that ebb and flow by the moon. Upon such sacrifices, my Cordelia, the gods themselves throw incense. Have I caught thee? He that parts us shall bring a brand from heaven and fire us hence like foxes. Wipe thine eyes. The good years shall devour them flesh and fell, ere they shall make us weep. We'll see them starve first. Thank you. This has been so delightful. Uh, this is... Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hear Me Out is a Lucy Eaton Productions podcast. Music composed by Tristan Kay and artwork by Rebecca Bright. Our heartfelt thanks to the estates and license holders that allow us to read our guests' speech choices. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please, please subscribe, rate and review. You can follow us on social media at Pod Hear Me Out and enjoy visual clips of the interviews on our YouTube channel. Finally, if you would like to support Hear Me Out, go ahead and click the Patreon link at the bottom of the episode bios.